0: This episode is brought to you by Dentons Canada. From startups to industry icons, Dentons acts for a wide variety of companies in both the public and private realms. As the world's largest law firm, Dentons can provide its global reach to your business. Visit Dentons.com for more details.
1: Welcome to The Frontier, a podcast series brought to you by Cap Intel, dedicated to bringing you the latest insights, innovations, and investment philosophies from the professionals who invest your money. Today on the podcast, we have Equium Capital's Adam Merle and Cameron Hurst. Adam is a portfolio manager and the head of research and has been working in the buy side for 15 years. He started his career with Credit Suisse in Zurich and subsequently moved to New York where he spent six years working on the buy side for ING with approximately $100 of insurance assets. Adam then moved to Canada in 2008 where he worked with Omers on the pension plan side managing approximately $50 billion in assets. He then spent a few years gaining private client experience working with a wealth manager and eventually founded APM Capital with Cameron in 2016. Cameron is a portfolio manager and chief investment officer of APM Capital. He started on the sell side in New York doing bottom-up fundamental research, covering mid- and large-cap banks. Realizing he was a better fit for BuySide, he moved to Canada, where he worked with RBC Asset Management BuySide. Cameron was at RBC through the core years of the financial crisis and focused on consumer staples and financial services. After five years, Cameron felt it was time for a move, which led him to Barometer Capital, a long-short equity hedge fund, where he ran global and U.S. positions. After this, he moved to CounterCord, where he spent two and a half years and built an internal asset management platform. Cameron then felt it was time to incorporate all the best elements of the various shops that he and Adam had contributed to over the years in their careers and subsequently founded Equium Capital.
2: Thank you for coming on the show. What is value investing?
0: Well, it can mean a lot of different things. I think for us, it means that price paid matters. It doesn't mean necessarily cheap. It just means that something is mispriced. You're getting a good price when you buy it.
2: And are stocks undervalued purely by sort of one or two factors, maybe investor behavior, or are other factors uh, out there causing them to be undervalued?
0: Well, there's two sides, really. There's the multiple paid, and then there's what you're paying for on the earning side. So sometimes investor sentiment can drive around the multiple. But a lot of times, and you know, I think an area where we have a bit of an edge is really on the earnings side, and people really understand the earnings power of particular companies. And so, I think that's really where, where we come in on on value investing. It's it's not just the multiple; it's it's just as much the earnings and the expectations that people consistently get wrong over time.
2: Is value investing useful for the short term and long term? And how long does it take before the stock meets or exceeds, and investors? Calculate intrinsic value.
0: Yeah, it completely depends. Some days, sometimes it can be one day and sometimes it can be multiple years. I think, you know, trying to find that catalyst and understanding why something is cheap and why you think the market's view of that company will change over time is really important to understand the timing of it. As a factor, value is something that works over the cycle. Now, if you have say, a basket of a 1,000 names, and you're just running a quant model, and you can just basket and reweight on, on valuation, then you can get the value factor working for you in the way that the academic studies would suggest they would. But really, as an individual investor trying to pick stocks, you're probably much better off figuring out where that mispricing is, why that's going to change, and really trying to figure out you know, different ways of thinking about the quality of the business, you know, why the market has perceived something and why they're wrong.
2: So essentially, when you're in value investing, you've got these two sort of values you're staring at. There's the market value that everybody knows, the stock price, etc. And then there's the underlying sort of value that you really think it's worth and that intrinsic value. So when people are thinking about value investing, you've got to kind of keep in mind, you've got these two different value points you're looking at. And essentially, what you want to try to find is a space where there's a disconnect between those two.
0: So, that's right. There's the gap between what you think is the value and what the market thinks is the value. And I think it's really important to understand you know, why that gap should close. So, if you're just off on your own and you have a certain view and the, you don't have a rationale as to why the market will come around to your view, you're probably going to be waiting for quite some time. It's really important from a return perspective to understand and have a catalyst as to why the market will conform to your view and, and why you are right and they're wrong.
2: And then what is momentum investing?
3: Very simply put, momentum investing is the idea that something in an uptrend or a downtrend will continue to be in an uptrend or a downtrend. There's a large body of statistical information and, and research that supports the idea that once in a trend, It continues. So a stock is more likely to continue going higher, or a sector or a market is is likely to continue going higher over time if it is in a sustained uptrend. It is less likely to fall out of that uptrend, and thus people go through and screen for momentum and then build portfolios of stocks in uptrends on the premise that they will continue to go up.
2: And then what would classify as
3: a trend? That's a good question. Uh, A lot of different technicians and momentum investors will use different timeframes, different uh, screening uh, thresholds to classify a trend. For us, we look at an 18 month to two year timeline to establish what is probably aptly called a medium term trend. Our work and uh, the experience that we've had uh, finds that there's a a better likelihood of uh, getting the trend right over that time frame. Uh, if you go much shorter, you have a likelihood of getting something that maybe flames out too quickly. It has a pop on an earnings, but is it really a sustainable trend so it fades? Or uh, in essence, you can just get whipped around uh, if you focus too short. But with the medium-term trend, uh, it can stop you out when things are breaking down after a good long run. Similarly, if it breaks up through a downtrend and into a sustainable uptrend, it can give you the right signal on that without being a false start. So we use that type of of threshold for our work. But some people will use um, 20-day trading ranges, uh, 65-day moving averages. There's all kinds of different thresholds out there for momentum investing. Um, We tend to take a bit more of a conservative lens on it, though.
2: And would your sort of timeline using momentum investing reflect the classification of as a trend? So, for example, a short-term uh, momentum investor would use a twenty-day trend, uh, whereas if you're in a longer-term view, you'd want to stretch the trend out maybe to the eighteen months or two years, or. Um, would you be able to, to switch those? Like, is, Does they mirror, mirror each other?
3: I think, I think that's fair to say. It's kind of interesting what question you asked, though, when you said long-term being 18 months to two years. I think that's a very recent uh, phenomenon that that has contracted down to really what's the shorter end of medium. The you know, longer term used to be 8 to 10 years. You know, medium term used to be five years. And uh, since the financial crisis, and it also dovetails with, technology, enabling retail investors, access to information, fair disclosure rules, all of the information that's out there combined with technology has enabled people to participate in the market on a real-time basis. And that has accelerated the view of short, medium, and long-term into much more contracted periods of time. Uh, We we think of medium as uh, 18 months to two years, Uh, and so we, we use trend lines and analysis that is in that zone. Uh, we also, when we're, we're buying or selling positions to try to get the trading right, we'll use uh, daily stoch- stochastic indicators as well as RSI, which is mean reverting, which can be on a 14-day uh, you know trailing basis. So it can be quite tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gives you short-term overbought and oversold signals if you're looking to enter or exit a position.
2: Must be my uh, startup mentality with the <laughs> long-term, short-term. Given that then, it, just to flush it out. You know, explicitly, so is is momentum investing useful for the short term or the long term primarily? like like where do most momentum investors tend to use this this type of strategy?
3: We would suggest that it works better over the medium to longer term uh, as, as presently or conventionally stated if, if it's short term, it le- it can lead to Overtrading of a portfolio or a position and you can either burn your profits in terms of transaction costs or uh, When you buy a false breakout or sell a false bottom, you can get whipped around called whipsaw um, a lot of things can happen in the short term unless you are a rarefied trader and prop desks in New York or anywhere else in the world London Toronto were built on that basis that someone could move so quickly that they could use technicals and momentum and other factors to capitalize on the very short-term uh, trading patterns. That's still alive and well with AI and machine learning and high-frequency trading, but it's, it's, it's less prevalent now, uh, partly because algorithms have been designed to counteract high-frequency trading, and so the game's kind of up, and everyone has almost the same speed, so that game is kind of up. But ultimately, if you take uh, a real momentum strategy and overlay it over a medium period of time. You're going to get the bulk of the movement right even if perhaps you buy a little too early or sell uh, a little too late so you don't do so well on the ends if you get the meat of that move over a couple of years or longer correct then you can do quite well with that strategy
2: so is either strategy more active than the other it sounds a little bit like um potentially value investing is a bit more sort of picking out individual companies and deeper diving whereas momentum um, can be digging in on trends or is it just that the fact that people use algorithms and sort of screeners to uh, to identify uh, momentum investing more often like is, is one
3: strategy more active than the other or
0: can start. You can start.
3: On, the, on the momentum side it, yeah, it does tend to lean a little shorter. Mm. Um, you know, and and there's a natural human tendency, you know, and and instant gratification in social media. Everything just seems to be kind of shortening up that attention span and and that need to be correct right away. Um, However, the the idea is so accessible to everyone who can pull up the the RSI or uh, a MACD oscillator or or any number of these somewhat technical, but nonetheless easily accessible trading pattern analysis packages. And when you can do that, you know, it enables people to trade pretty readily. And because online platforms literally enable you to to execute, um, people tend to be trading a little bit more rapidly and have higher turnover with momentum strategies.
0: Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add is just the way that we think about it is really value fills the hopper and the momentum strategy shoots the balls. So. You know, it, it it doesn't necessarily they don't conflict with one another necessarily. It's really just the opportunity set that we then apply the momentum factor to that just really attempts to maximize the risk reward.
2: Would either strategy then be inherently riskier than the other one or it just depends on how you use
0: it? I think they taken separately, they they both have their moments in the cycle where they work better than others. And so, I don't know if individually they're riskier. They certainly have their different approaches. But through the cycle, I think you're, you're probably looking at two factors that have been statistically proven to add alpha. And so, we've obviously, we've talked a little bit about how combining them actually improves your return and lowers your risk. And separately, I don't actually know where the actual specific, you know, academic research would fall out. But I don't have a view that through the cycle that either one individually would be any riskier than the other.
3: Yeah, if I can add on to that. I mean, I, it's, it's, a real, it's an apt question because there's a, I mean, there's a reason we brought these two strategies together. I know we'll go through that a little bit later. But, but the idea is they both have their own benefits and they both have their own risks. And I think much like we would argue robo-investing is great if you're a robot. But if you, are, if you are not, and you have a behavioral cycle that you go through watching your own investments, it is unlikely to actually prevent you from doing the wrong thing at the wrong time that you would do anyway. So the, the benefit of having people full-time on and on, working on this, on your managing your portfolio, overseeing markets, literally real-time every day, is that hopefully, you know if you pick the right manager, they know how to use a tool that allows them to see which strategy is working well at which time. And it's not a day in, day out, you know, one day it's this, one day it's that. They, they move in large cycles. And there are times when value investing is absolutely going to trump momentum. And there's times when momentum will absolutely trump value. And we just don't believe it's good enough anymore for a manager to sit back and say, well, I'm a value manager and value didn't work this year. you know, Or I'm a momentum guy and it was out of favor this year. That's not good enough, you know. Especially when you have the ability to build a platform that can do both. I think that's what people need now.
2: Understanding the basics now of of both strategies, um, I want to talk a bit about the the value investing strategy and about how you can apply it to the real world. So, how do you calculate stocks' intrinsic value?
0: So, from a bottoms up perspective. You know, we use a DCF, a three-stage model. I really like using kind of the shorter term. Generally speaking, there's some sort of disconnect. And so, either there's a catch-up on earnings or something's happened a restructuring, a merger, or something of the sort. Um, and then I'll use a, a medium-term, kind of five- to ten-year period where it's really more about... The trend growth rate of the economy of the category the ability of the company to take share uh, and just be able to have a more moderate view that doesn't necessarily You know, once we get to the terminal value, you're really about compressing your excess return to your cost of capital over time. And so I feel like having that medium term growth rate in there actually properly reflects your view as to the economics of the business. And then the longer term, out 10 years, you can push that chunky terminal value out a few. And that's where you can really, you know, build in some conservatism in terms of that excess return.
2: So essentially, you're looking at, you're modeling the business, you're creating a, creating a model for it, um, looking at its value that the model's fitting out versus the market, but then also taking into account, in the longer term, uh, staring away from just necessarily a deep dive on the company, it's more about, okay, well, you know, what does the market look like? What's the long-term um, a- economic uh, growth look like that, that, that affects that market? And what do you think that this firm's ability to increase its share in its particular market combined with you? The long term sort of outlook of the market um, is really where you're getting that value and how you're kind of calculating that down to a number.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think the one thing that's really important to remember when you're building these models is that you really key in on the drivers of return on invested capital. So, you know, your sales, your margins, your turns, um, those are what's going to really drive value don't spend your time worrying about something that's, you know, five basis points here or some tiny market over there. That's not what's going to drive value over time. Uh, Where the market is going to come around to your view is really, if you were right about those bigger factors, the smaller stuff over time, you're going to get, your DCF is guaranteed to be wrong, right? And so it's really important that where you think you're different than the market is built off those key drivers that will likely compound value over time versus some small minority piece of the business that you know, you're know you likely to be wrong on anyway.
2: And how do you identify stocks that have this value disconnect? Is there any way to predict stocks that have a higher propensity to have the disconnect? For example, uh, more widely covered stocks where you have more opinion, uh, aggregate opinion flying around and potentially affecting it. Um, how do you find these, these stocks to be able to actually
0: model? Uh, I think that can be true. I mean, certainly coverage can have an impact. Um, you know, It's a bit of a trade-off with larger companies having more coverage and small companies having less coverage, and the smaller companies being a lot harder to model, um, and probably earlier on in their business cycle with more risk. So you have to keep that in mind as well. You know, I think using a multi-factor screen is something that's really helped, helped us over time and it really helps to identify those those key drivers you know what's happening within the business you know what's happening on on the return front what's happening with their asset turns what the what does the leverage look like um, so you can really narrow down on on the quality basis because i meant, as i mentioned earlier it's not just about the price and the valuation it's also about the quality of the business and so What I think I've always found is that being able to limit the pool to companies where you're likely to see a higher persistency of excess returns, you're more often than not going to be able to add value and earn excess returns.
2: Once identified, how quickly do you have to react to take advantage of an opportunity as a value investor?
0: So it's interesting because sometimes opportunities will pop up. There might be some one off like a E. coli disaster hits a restaurant or something like that. But I've always found that those snapbacks are fairly infrequent and it's much more often where you've had a stock sell off or go into the penalty box for whatever reason that those challenges are likely to persist. And it's not just about the fundamentals of the business. But there's also the psychology aspect of uh, the investor group uh, that just either own the stock or looking to buy into the stock. And so from my perspective, I've always seen this as at least multi-month, if not you know 12 to 24 months in terms of even if it's a good company and they've gone through a bad period, I think you have time and it's really key to focus in on the earnings progression of the business. If earnings are still declining, generally speaking, you've, you've got a lot of time and you might, your capital might be better off elsewhere. But if earnings are stabilizing, the stock's no longer reacting to bad news, then you start to get a little more interested in terms of, OK, maybe it's time to get in on this. But I've never, it's almost never do I see something snap immediately back, even though the knee-jerk reaction from a lot of value investors is, oh, here's my opportunity, I have to get on this. I've, I've generally not found that to be a winning strategy over time.
2: So it's not necessarily just waiting for the bad news to strike and diving in trying to take advantage. It's it's still that longer-term, sort of or medium-term look and, and trying to see um, something quicker than taking a long position very quickly. Shifting back to momentum investing, let's discuss how you implement it in the real world. Um,
1: How do you define a trend to capitalize on in momentum
3: investing? So as we talked about earlier, there are a number of ways to do that. Um, Without being overly complicated, we have sort of a checklist of things we want to see. But in essence, you want to see a positive progression in the chart. Just the simple price chart, you want to see it making new highs or at least recent new highs. Uh, not just a week or a couple of weeks, but it's in on a sustained basis, it has started to make progress. People are probably talking about it, for example. You know, so that it's it's got it's got attention, and there might be a positive story behind it, and you're starting to see that positive story reflected in the fact there are more buyers than sellers. So you're looking for a positive price pattern. Supporting that, what you also want to see is that the relative strength of that particular industry group or sector or stock is doing better than its group or market. You wanna see that outperformance happening and that would be identifying leadership. And for us, we do that uh, with relative strength uh, analysis and, and we look at that on the 18 month to two year basis. And once it breaks up through that, again, making positive price highs at the same time, you've got the relative confirming the price, then that's something that we would identify as having established a positive trend.
2: And are all trends equal or are there some trends that you can identify as better? Is that more a gut feel or how things happen? Or do you, do you kind of see a history and say, no, this is a really unique opportunity?
3: I mean, it would be fantastic if you could just learn all this in a book. Uh, you, you know, if it, was, if it was that simple. And a, quant, uh, a quantitative analyst or portfolio manager or, or strategy would suggest it can be just learned and coded and that's it. We would argue that it's a little more nuanced than that, uh, and, and the technical work that we do is really the amalgamation of experience at RBC, at Barometer, and then b- bringing the, the two philosophies together at Canaccord and at Equium. Um, we, we do confirm by looking at other uh, technical work on the sell side that, that we respect and we think pick up on good trends, particularly when we see divergences between our opinions on something and another technician's opinion. Uh, that it's always important, uh, both on fundamental and on technical analysis, to figure out why you don't agree. There's a lot of information in that, but ultimately, when we put this whole thing together, you know, we need to see the two. We need to see the two confirm uh, because there is some experience that comes into this. There is an amalgamation of different uh, positive markets and negative markets, and how you've seen it unfold in the past, and particularly with regard to technical analysis on individual positions, we don't find. A, a strong probability of success or, we would say, efficacy of that strategy without the fundamental. Um, when you take a larger group like a sector or a country, a larger pool of stocks all acting individually, it tends to mute out the individual company factors and risks, and you tend to see them moving as a sector. And so if one company in a group of 84 bombs in earnings and it drops 20%, it doesn't affect that whole group Technicals work really, really well in that type of of a situation. So picking a theme like consumer staples uh, versus uh, technology, you'll see one underperforming, one outperforming. The efficacy of that analysis is quite high, in other words, the likelihood of picking the right group when you use technical analysis is quite high.
2: What is the impact of the overall market performance on momentum investing? One could assume that during a bear or bull market, um, there's a lot of noise with all the stocks heading in the same direction. That it would be hard to be able to identify where's a trend I can capitalize on and what is just the market moving. How does that work? It's
3: a good question because it speaks to a lot of of what's a bit differentiated on our on in our strategy on our platform and. As opposed to a traditional fund construct where typically you're limited to 10% cash. So even in a bear market, when you're running something like consumer and financial stocks, you still can only hold 10% cash. Mm -hmm. So you can be uh, as little as 90% invested. In other words, you're invested, even if it's a terrible sector and the market's going down. One of the reasons or one of the main principles behind what we do is that we don't have to limit ourselves to 10% cash. We built a multi-strategy, multi-asset portfolio. We can go up to 50% cash to get out of harm's way. We can shift from equities over into bonds. And so what that enables you to do is if there are no positive momentum trends to be found, even if there are some good fundamental things going on, if they're not confirmed by positive price action and positive uh, technical analysis, then we won't do it. And the reason for that is because that's what keeps us out of harm's way. And we'll look at something more defensive. And it, that could first be a rotation off the cyclical equities if those trends aren't confirming into something more defensive like the bond proxies. If that's not working, we can shift right over into bonds. If that's not working, we can go you know, money market securities and cash. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to move uh, seamlessly and flow between the asset classes and the risk categories enable us to not just build a very diversified portfolio, But to get out of the way, uh, get out of harm's way, don't be where there aren't good returns to be had. And if you can't find any decent returns, well then hide out in cash.
2: Can you apply either of these strategies to bonds or is this just an equities strategy?
0: Not really. I mean, I think we do own bonds. It's a big piece of our, our benchmark in our portfolio, but it's really about the macro view. They're very different asset classes with very different risk rewards and return opportunities. And so for us, it's really about understanding the cycle, having a view on inflation and interest rates. That's really how we, how we think about allocating within bonds really more at the asset class level than trying to use any kind of bottoms up strategy to, to pick out individual issues. Uh, but certainly we have views on, on credit spreads. It's a really important part of our process, you know, as, as, as well as interest rates and inflation, which are inputs across the board, really.
2: What about ETFs or managed products? Can
3: you use other strategies on those? Yeah, it actually works pretty well on ETF. Well, I suppose it depends on the ETF itself. If, if the underlying holdings of the ETF are, are illiquid or quite narrow, it, it can be a bit of a challenge. Because again, it comes back to the size of the group you're doing the analysis on. An ETF is really just a collection of, of assets into a pool, and you can just buy a slice of that pool. That's it. For all intents and purposes, that's an ETF. So if the pool of assets underneath that you're buying a slice of all trade exactly the same, uh, there's not a lot of of diversification or differentiation, um, or it's heavily weighted to say one or two or three particular stocks or assets, then you're really back to the problem of technical analysis not doing a great job with a small group of assets that you're doing the work on. Whereas if you do it on something uh, like the XIC as an ETF we've used to uh, take exposure in the Canadian equity market uh, as a whole, you know, it replicates the TSX, and so it's a broadly diversified multi-sector pool of assets and technical analysis can work really well on that ETF because you're really just doing it on the Canadian equity market. So um, it doesn't work as well on things like fixed income or commodity ETFs, although you do still get a look at it. But again, if you're careful about what the underlying assets are for the ETF, um, it can definitely give you a view. We would always, however, Suggest you come back and not only have a positive confirmation from technicals, but you have to have a reason to be there There's got to be a value proposition to owning that pool of assets
2: So ETFs really just open up a new avenue or a, a different category of momentum investing So Canadian equities versus you know a specific equity in Canada um, That's what ETFs can allow you to kind of capitalize on or, or have, Take a momentum position.
3: Yes, definitely and, and I think it opens up kind of an interesting short point, but We think the ETF market is at a point of change right now where everyone thinks of ETFs as a security, kind of the way we're talking about it right now. But ultimately, there's going to be a small niche of ETFs that are actually just funds. They're they're actively managed funds. This is exactly what we do here at Equium Capital. We offer an actively managed global multi-asset fund, but people can access that strategy simply by buying an ETF. So it is just a, a channel. It's a, a point of distribution for people to access a certain fund. Then, in the middle part of the category right now, are what's called smart beta, uh, or um, uh, there's a number of different terms for it, but let's call it smart beta as the broad category. You pay a little bit more, and it's supposed to beat a passive index. We think that's probably going to get priced down and and squished out, but the middle always seems to. And then the very cheap. Uh, passive index replicating or sector replicating ETFs, I mean, they're next to nothing now. They're single digit basis points to buy a lot of them. And so you hoover up the volume of Vanguard or BlackRock iShares or BMO ETFs. You charge very, very little for it. And and you get a very specific exposure. Uh, That's what people think of as ETFs right now. But we think it's going to grow and become something There's sort of trading ETFs like that. And then there's investing ETFs like what we do.
2: At equity and capital, you incorporate both momentum and value investing strategies in your practice. Why do you believe this is a winning strategy?
0: Well, I guess the two things. One is the academic research would support that conclusion. So um, the Sharpe ratios, the returns on a basis of risk are significantly higher when you combine the two factors of this cycle. And so that's all well and good, but you know, how do we actually apply that? And I think from a, a practical standpoint, it's really about increasing the probability of success. So if we're buying good, cheap stocks within trend, we're just increasing the probabilities that this is going to work out and add value over time. It's not just about um, you know what the particular factor might be doing. It's really about trying to swing for fat pitches. And the momentum and the value combined really just increases your odds of success.
2: So not only are you considering uh, the value of, uh, the disconnect of a stock, you're also considering it within the context of a momentum uh, play as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's again, when you, you bring together best practices from all your cumulative experience, you realize that it doesn't have to be one or the other. And in fact... You get exactly as Adam says. The probability of success is never a hundred percent, no matter you know what strategy you're using. But it's a lot higher when you're using more than one lens to look at something. And we've found over time, and the track record uh, here and and prior would show, you know, when you when you have a good fundamental thesis, and it is confirmed by a positive technical picture, your odds of getting that investment right go much higher.
2: It's harder to find opportunities when you have to combine both strategies or are they as readily available when you're looking at both
0: of them? Actually, I think it's really helpful because we're a global multi-asset manager, which is a massive universe to try and get through. And so having the research team, Brie and I focus just on areas that are working really narrows our focus so that we can actually effectively use our time to go through the fundamentals, see if there's a price disconnect and really create some really good bottoms-up research. You know, without that momentum lens, we'd be overwhelmed, I think, from the approach that we take.
2: So interesting. It's actually more of a filter for you guys than there's a, you know narrowing narrowing your
3: focus. Yeah, definitely. But also importantly too, I guess the technical side of it uh, serves two two purposes. One is to confirm the good fundamental work that Adam and the research team do, but the other is to suggest to them when it's not working. You know, and and having been a fundamental analyst, it comes from a a place of huge humility, because you really get entrenched in a view you've worked for months or years on a particular theme or a stock or a sector. It's very hard to emotionally distance yourself. And this is why everyone says selling is the hardest thing. Institutional and retail alike, everyone says the same thing. And the technicals are unemotional. It, it shows a breakdown in the charts when it shows a breakdown. And and having that discipline, not only uh, on the upside, can confirm a positive fundamental thesis, but it can also say, even though you think it might take a little bit longer for this theme to play out, or the catalyst might take a little bit longer, the value realization, in other words, it's not working. And in fact, it's underperforming. And that's how you stay out of harm's way. At least that's how we stay out of harm's way. And that's a, that's a hugely important part of what we do because our, our number one premise is capital preservation. Mm. Earn a reasonable return for investors, but don't lose the money, yeah. you know? And it might sound simple, but when you get emotionally wed to an idea that breaks down, more often than not, most people will get stuck in it. And, and the technical analysis prevents that.
2: That's a really interesting point. I didn't actually pick up on with regards to value investing is that it it must take a long time. You've you've gone out. You modeled the company. You've taken a position. You know you're bought in. Um, that whole idea of sunk costs of of you know walking away from it um, hadn't actually played into it. But you're able to sort of take the momentum. The more technical, um, I guess, the the colder view. The less less. Um, Wed to, as you said, um, to thesis and say, no, this will box you in so that essentially you, you won't run into that um, issue with value investing where you're really bought in and, well, no, okay, you've hit the wall, momentum's saying stop, therefore we can sell and, and we don't have to worry so much about it or it doesn't necessarily hurt quite as much to walk away from
3: your position. You don't get them all right, but that's definitely the idea. Mm. I mean, you know, we had one particular stock this year where we did get stopped out of it and it came back and continued to work. So we'd rather apologize for that than staying in something too long. And and that's generally how it works, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think everybody's lost their shirt at one point for holding onto something a little bit too long. I certainly
3: have,
2: so. Do you believe this blended strategy can remain effective in the long run? and Are there any trends friending the efficacy of the strategy or the competing strategies you see uh, replacing or potentially reducing the efficacy of these strategies?
3: I think um, we already spoke to to the idea that the the two strategies using or being used um, in a conflated way, so like at the same time for the same purpose, just two different lenses definitely increases the efficacy or the the chance of success of a position. Um, There's a reason we use these two I mean, and it's not just because it's what we grew up in. That there's a, a litany of academic research out there that shows, you know, the the not just the probabilities, but the returns are actually better as well by using both strategies. And um, the other, thinking about it the other way, we also don't use arbitrage. So, in other words, uh, with high frequency trading for a long time, people invested hundreds of millions of dollars of building the the biggest or the shortest fiber optic cable between the exchange and a trading desk so that they could literally get nanoseconds of extra or reduced time for a trade so they could be one tick in front of somebody else. Ultimately, someone's going to spend more money, build a shorter cable, that strategy will be arbitraged out. Um, We thought a lot about what will be this, this strategy's undoing, and ultimately, it's probably machines, and it's probably AI, when they get to the point where there's no behavioral investing cycle. In other words, people are always going to come up with new strategies and arbitrage them out. It's just the way it goes. It'll work, and then it'll flame out. Uh, and then those, as Adam talked about earlier, those excess returns get get basically distributed down to zero. For us, because we play on that behavioral cycle, there's a market cycle, and our th- our particular approach is just to get out of harm's way and protect capital when that's the right thing to do and then to participate on the way up. As long as there's a cycle, we're good. We we can step in and step out as appropriate, but the minute the machines well and truly take over, there won't be a cycle there will be a f- perfectly efficient pricing. I mean, Adam might disagree with this, but I think, you know, if machines are doing it all, it's immediate and it's perfectly efficient pricing, well, we can't, we can't figure out whether to buy or sell that because it'll be done before we get there.
2: Interesting times ahead.
3: <laughs> We're hoping that's a few years away. Yeah.
2: <laughs> now, in the frontier, part of our goal is to educate investors um, based on experiences of professional investors. So he has done this professionally for a long time trying to get some of the lessons and some of the lessons learned from doing this as a a full-time job. So, in that context, what is one piece of advice you'd like to leave with our listeners who are investing on their own?
0: Well, I've got two. One is, uh, be sure you match your style with your temperament. I've seen this a few times now where people think they want to be value investors, but they actually don't have the mentality for it or their growth guys. And there's a real mismatch sometimes, and it's really important. It's it's philosophy, it's process, and it's execution. And if you don't have the proper mental and emotional alignment with that particular style, you will not succeed. So that's one really important one. The second one is, is to always remember that markets are social creations, not mathematical ones. And so we've covered a bit of that today. And there's one strategist. His name is Russell Napier former uh, CLSA economist, really famous guy within the industry, Um, I would definitely look him up. And he really hammered this home with me. And I think every time when I see values flying all over the place, I I always come back to that. And it's really helped me see through a lot of volatile times. It's just understanding that you may have the math right, but the markets don't necessarily price that way. It's certainly over any kind of near-term horizon.
3: That's a really good one. Uh, from my perspective, I just think if there's one thing I could remind people of right now, the last few years have been really easy. You know, and you've had the central banks fill in the punch bowl again and again and again, and the party's been great, not without its hiccups. You know, somebody bumped the lights and bumped the turntable and like things happen, but the party's been long and good and we're coming to the end of it. And it's it's coming to that time. We used sort of a phrase recently on a, a show uh, one of the, the BNN shows and he said, and it kind of got more airplay than we expected. And it was, it, it's, it's, this is real investing now. And you've got to know when to step away. And everyone is so programmed right now to buy dips that this first kind of shake of the, the S&P futures took a 12% bump uh, in February from a January peak. And that, that really floored people because we've had so little volatility for years now. And I would just encourage people to really think about the fact that, I mean, it's fine. I did the math on the weekend. Actually it's over 60,000 hours I've spent doing this, you know, and, and so what we do, and that's just me. So I don't know, multiply it by two and you get 120,000 hours of experience in this, you know, and that's just the two of us, you know, it's, it's going to get tricky now and and hopefully people will recognize that they should always do a little bit on their own, but maybe they want to think about getting a bit of help from us or from anybody else that has that kind of experience when the markets start to get a bit more temperamental.
2: With that, thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please visit www.equiumcapital.com.
0: This episode is brought to you by Capintel, a fund analytics company helping investment professionals select the top performing funds for their clients. Industry experts nationwide trust Capintel to make better decisions faster. Find
1: out why at capintel.ca.